All okay. right. Well, here okay. we are. Episode 13. 13. And Austin has his topic. It didn't disappear. It didn't disappear. I was, I was, my heart started pounding and I was. I was freaking out for you. I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what's going to, what's going to happen. It's later o'clock at night right now. Mm-hmm. And. Later o'clock at night. <laughs> I mean. You're not wrong. That's accurate. It is a little later than we usually sit down. We're normally finishing up by now. Right about now, yeah. <clears throat> but, Hannah, do you have any interesting or fun topics or news before we start? Um, I don't think so. The most exciting thing is really just that I'm getting a new laptop for podcasting so I can edit shows and do research on the couch. It's going to make a world of difference. It's going to make a huge difference. I mean, your tablet is nice and it it's has nice. a laptop capability. But yeah, but it's too flimsy to like actually sit in your lap. And um, normally when it's sitting in my lap or on the couch, it likes to disconnect from the keyboard randomly. God, that's so annoying. that's really, that's a new one. That's been super fun. But yeah, I also got a really good deal on the laptop. So that makes me happy. There you go. But Saving money, making things better. Yeah. It should be here next week, I think. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very nice. What about you? Do you have anything? So, I have a story from yesterday. Okay. So, yesterday I was going out, getting ready for my trip and everything, buying what I needed, went to REI, stayed there way longer than I wanted to, but hey, it's like my candy store. So, I got hungry on the way home, and I was like, you know, I don't know what I want. Thought to it myself, I'm like, you know, I want Taco John's. I don't know why, I just want Taco John's. I want some okay. tater. I want some tater rollies. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, they're delicious little morsels. So while I was, after I ordered my food, I look behind me and there's this gold minivan that's just got shit piled on top of like the dash and everything. Looks like someone lives out of their, uh, out of the van. Okay. And then I just, I just see one guy. It's like, okay, maybe he does live out of his van. Maybe he doesn't have a home or something, whatever. And then I pay for my food. I'm waiting for it. Things are taking a little longer. I look at my rearview mirror. And I see this lady pop out of the back, and it's pitch black past him. I couldn't see nothing, but she's just laying. It looks like she's just laying down. And she starts trying to bite the dude in the driver's seat. Like, and she's crazy looking, too. Like, she's very thin, very pale. She's got the scabs all over her face. Like, looks straight like meth. And... I see that. I'm like, what is going on back there? And she's all, and I heard, and I didn't pay attention. A couple more seconds go by and she starts screaming. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I'm just, I'm literally just staring in my rearview mirror at this point. Trying to like, just, just watching this. What I can only assume is. Actually, I don't need, I don't know. No, I, 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 I wouldn't even try to assume. I didn't even assume. I, there's. Wow, that was a, there's a lot going on already. So, at this, I'm still waiting for my food. I've got my drink, and I'm like, it, it was a solid like five minits in this drive through, which no big deal. The food was very fresh when I got home, so that uh, okay. was a plus. Yeah. But she starts screaming, and she's like, she grabs the guy's arm and tries to bite it. You know what this guy's doing? He's going like, so you know, like when a pet or something goes like is like trying to get attention, you're like, no, stop. That's what he was doing. He was like literally just going, no, God, stop. Like, like he was like smiling and just like laughing. And she was like legitly trying to like, 
I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, am I actually watching this? And then I hear the people behind the glass door of the drive-thru or the, the sliding door, whatever you want to call it. They're like, dude, she's biting him. Oh like, they're God. watching this show, too. I'm like, what the fuck? Shit. And then so I leave the drive-thru. And I look over and I can see. I'm driving really slow to the roundabout off of uh, Rice Street. Okay. So you know where we're kind of at now. Um, I look over and I can see them yelling into the window, but not like angry yelling, like fun yelling. Like, did they actually like make their order or are they just yelling at these people and saying their order? Because it sounded like, what do you want? But I don't know if it's like she's just methed out where she's just screaming now. Like, what do you want? What do you need? And all this stuff. Because it would be right on par with what she was doing. Huh. And I just I drove away, shook my head. I'm like, stay classy, Minnesota. Wow. Okay. So that's what you get for going to Taco John's. Yep. Um, a show before your dinner. But, wow. It was... Uh, Somewhere in all of that, um, I did think of one thing I had to yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I was listening to last week's episode, and I realized when we were talking about the mirrors with the hat man and shadow people, mm-hmm. we kept saying magnetizing instead of magnifying. Did we? <laughs> yeah. Oops. I think we said it like three different times, so whoops. Well, be interesting if we get any feedback on that one. I'm just waiting. Um, I have gotten feedback on the episode from my mom. She said, I really liked that one. Keep doing more like that. And I was like, what? Keep doing more like that? It's no different than any, any other episode. Yeah. But, but thank you for the encouragement, mom. I appreciate it. We, Brenda, we will keep doing things like that. <laughs> Don't you worry. So, yeah. We're going to keep doing things like that. That's That's what we're going to do. Absolutely. And you've got the quarter underneath your thing there. Sure do. I was just about to ask you, Hannah, where's that pesky quarter at? Yeah, it's right there. Did you get what you need? You you, you don't need a socket. Thank you. Um, Yes, Ash needs to work on her little spaceship. She needs that. So, as always, Austin's heads, Hannah is tails. I think I'm supposed to flip it this week. Oh, yeah. I think we decided to go back and forth. Yes, we did. All right, here we go. What's it say? Heads. Yes. Two for two. <laughs> it's the small little victories I'm I'm going for right now. All right, Hannah. Are you ready to be transported back to the 1960s? Yes. <laughs> I mean, sure, because that's where we're starting my story, too. Jesus, what the continuity. We just keep up with it. We're really good at this. But yes, we are traveling back to the 1960s. So we're here to talk about the murder of Catherine Kitty Genovese. Okay. So I will be referring to her as Kitty throughout the entire one, since that was her nickname. Kitty was born on July 7th, 1935. She was raised in a Western Brooklyn neighborhood in New York. As a teen, she was remembered being a self-assured woman beyond her years. She married her current boyfriend at the time in 1954, but towards the end of the year, she divorced after Kitty realized that she was lesbian and she could not fake it any longer. 
That's fair. Kitty worked many clerical jobs, which she found very unappealing. And in the late 1950s, she accepted a job as a bartender, which she absolutely fell in love with. While working this bartender job during August 1961, she was actually arrested for uh, bookmaking, which during that time, bookmaking was actually taking bets on horses and other, and basically illegal gambling she was doing. Oh, okay. Not like actually making a book. I was going to say, what the fuck? Because I was in, I thought it was bookkeeping, but that's a different term. Yeah, but bookmaking. She was okay. a bookie, because she was taking bets from on horse races from her customers at the bar. Okay. She was ultimately fired, and she was fined fifty dollars. But she actually found a new job. It was a blessing in disguise. She started a new job at Eve's Eleventh Hour Bar in Queens. Kitty and the bar owner got very well acquainted, and Kitty eventually started managing the bar. She would work doubles almost every day just to be able to save money in hopes that one day she could open up her own Italian restaurant. Oh. And since 1963, she lived in her own apartment with her girlfriend at the time named Mary. Okay. Seems like a good little life, though, wouldn't you think? She's got a good, great bartending job. She's managing the bar. She's saving up money to open her own little Italian restaurant. Yeah. Get out. Evacuate the premises. But this whole little life that she's made for herself would unfortunately come to an end. On March 13th, 1964, Kitty left the bar around 2.30 a.m. after she finished all her closing shift duties. She got in her car, which was a little red Fiat, and it was a normal night home uh, driving after her shift, She got home around 3.25 a.m., parked in the normal parking spot she always parked in, which was only about 100 feet from her apartment, or at least the door that goes into the apartment complex in which she lived in, which was in an alley at the rear of the building. As Kitty walked towards her apartment, she screams, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. A neighbor of Kitty's, Robert Moser, heard the commotion and yelling out his window saying, Let that girl alone. After Moser yelled at the attacker, the attacker ran away, got back in their vehicle, and sped away. During this, Kitty slowly dragged herself back to the entrance of the apartment complex in hopes to get inside. Unfortunately, this is not where the attack stops. Her attacker returns in the same vehicle, now with his face covered with a wide-brimmed hat. Witnesses say they saw him searching the parking lot and then leaving towards the nearby train station and then returning from that same direction. So he left twice and has come back twice now. Yes, so he has he left in his car after her neighbor yelled at him. Yeah. He came back about 10 minutes later. He was looking for Kitty in the parking lot, and there's a train station about a block away. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to search there, too. Obviously, he's trying to search for Kitty at this time. Yeah. So he started making his way back towards where he attacked Kitty the first time. She was found in just side the building in the hallway and was unable to get inside due to a, a locked door. Once he finds her, he attacks her again, stabbing her multiple times before raping her and stealing $49 from her purse and running away again. What the hell? From eyewitness accounts from when they first saw the suspect with the first attack on Kitty, and when they saw him running away to his vehicle for the second time after the second time he attacked Kitty, this was all in a span of about a half hour. 
This happens so quick. Yeah. And Kitty's neighbor and longtime friend, Sophia, ultimately found her after the attack, after being woken up by her screams. She held Kitty in her arms and just kept whispering, help is on the way. The ambulance finally arrived at about a half hour later after Kitty was found. And due to Kitty's wounds, she unfortunately died en route to the hospital. Oh my goodness. After Kitty was pronounced dead, an investigation was now open. 7 a.m. that same morning, Kitty's girlfriend Mary was being interviewed by police. And later that same morning, she was interrogated for six hours by two homicide detectives. So right away, she's interviewed by police of her events of what happened and now interrogated because she's a suspect now. Okay. Weirdly enough, they only questioned her about the relationship between her and Kitty. Of course. During the interviews of all the witnesses, it was found that they had many questions about Mary and Kitty's relationship as well. Like, why? Who cares about the relationship? Oh, this is the 60s, right? And I understand that. But at the same time, it's like... So what what part of... This is in America, right? Yes, we're in New York. We're in New... Oh. I mean, you might as well have been a criminal if you were gay in the 60s. You might as well. It's true. But it was also found during these interviews, many residents in the building heard the commotions and the screams, but most of the residents didn't recognize it as a call for help. But the ones who did see it as a call for help or a cry for help called the police, but the police were very slow to respond. So, okay, what is going on in that building if they don't recognize that as a, as a call for help or a cry for help? Oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. Is that and not a cry also, for help? And then also, why is the girlfriend a suspect if many people reported seeing a man? Right. Like, okay. They interrogate her because she's a suspect? Probably, could, like, to your point, because she's gay. Okay. Because... I'm not happy about it, but... No, I'm never happy. <laughs> Are we not, ever? That I'm, not that I'm ever happy about it, but... So six days after the stabbing, on March 19th, police were called to Ozone Park about a stolen TV. Once police arrived, it was found the man who sold the TV said he was a mover and he was helping certain residents move. After talking with witnesses and the one who called the police, it was found out he was not a mover and the owners of the TV were not moving at all. I was going to say, what, you just see some movers roll up and you just, like, join the crew, move a couple things, and then take off with the TV? Right. Okay. TVs were heavy back then, too. Oh, my God, yeah. I can only imagine. And they they still had some that were made out of wood, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah, they were, like, big old TVs. Well, it was was a centerpiece, basically, Mm -hmm. with the TV slapped inside that also weighed 100 pounds itself. Yeah. (laughs) Also, before police arrived, one of the people that saw... This man moving this TV into his car was able to disable his vehicle so he couldn't leave until police arrived. Nice. Police noticed the owner of this vehicle matches the vehicle that was seen the night Kitty was murdered. Police now took 29-year-old Winston Mosley in for questioning about the TV. Later, turning to find out that he knows about the murder of Kitty. So they start talking, they start interrogating and investigating him about this. Oh, he knows about it. Okay. 
After an hours of interrogation, Mosley admitted to murdering Kitty. He went into great detail of how he killed her and all the events leading up to him killing her. He stalked her and followed her from the bar where she worked and tailed her all the way to her apartment where he stabbed her multiple times with a large hunting knife. Oh my god. During his confession, Mosley admits to killing two other women that were cold cases at that time. Also during the interrogation, he admitted to the only motives for killing these women was to simply kill a woman and he prefers to kill women because he says they were easier and didn't fight back. Sounds like a stand-up guy. Right? Jeez, fuck. Way to go, Winston. But before finding his victims, he waited until his wife went to work since she was a nurse and she worked overnights. Once she would leave for work, he would go into Queens to find his victim. Like, is he just bored? Basically, from the inter- from the interrogation and the investigation and the questions they answered, or he they asked him, it was basically like he just simply wanted to kill a woman. Gross. He also goes on to admit to committing 30 to 40 different burglaries as well. Oh. And after being assessed by a psychiatrist, he was found that he is a necrophile. Mainly due to the comment that he said, I thought Kitty was dead when I raped her. Okay. You good? Yeah. Yep, go ahead. I know it's a lot. Just wasn't ready for it is all. No. I wasn't ready for it when I I started reading this as well. Okay. So, after being charged and police being 100% that this is their man, the trial starts. On June 8th, 1964, Mosley would stand trial for the murder of Kitty, but not the other two murders, mainly because these were newer confessions from Mosley, and it threw police for a loop, mainly because they already had somebody who confessed to those murders, which, side because they did have somebody in custody, they did have somebody charged yeah, for those murders. Yeah. Okay. I think I just realized something, though. Take your face off the microphone. Sorry. <laughs> I think I do realize something that I did that I didn't mean to do. So I'm going to go back and correct myself before other people correct myself. Is that I said that there were cold cases. They weren't cold. They weren't cold okay. cases. No, yeah. they weren't. I had a note in there saying this was a cold case, but I forgot to take that out of there when I kept reading okay. through everything. So I just want to say that these were not cold cases they did have a suspect they did have a suspect charged with these murders okay. before Mosley did admit to those murders. Okay. But somebody else had already confessed and been charged. Exactly. Got it. Mm-hmm. Now that we're on the, all on the same page, due to my notes. <laughs> <laughs> my poor notes. Mosley did plead not guilty at the first hearing, but later changed his plea to not guilty by reasons of insanity. Mosley again went through all the events that happened during the night of Kitty's murder and went into detail about the numerous amounts of burglaries and new accounts of rape that he had committed. And remember, this is all from him. He's just saying this stuff now. Loud and proud, I guess. Loud and proud. Three days later, on June 11th, after hearing all the evidence, the jury began deliberating. The jury deliberated for seven hours that day, and at around, ni- at around 10.30 that night, the jury found Mosley, uh, Winston Mosley guilty for the murder of Kitty. 
and on June 15th, Mosley was sentenced to death. It was also noted that while hearing his sentence, Mosley showed no emotions whatsoever. Shocking, right? (laughs) (laughs) A detective even stated, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. Okay. But, unfortunately, after appeal with the New York Court of Appeals, Mosley's sentence was reduced down to a life sentence in prison. Okay. So, during his imprisonment on March 18, 1968, Mosley had escaped from prison while being transported back from Meyer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo, New York, where he was being treated by surgery for a self-inflicted wound. What that self-inflicted wound was... I do not know. I couldn't think of any self-inflicted wound that would need surgery unless we're talking stitches. But I don't know if stitches are considered surgery. I think it depends on how bad. Okay. It is. Well, I guess you would have, if it's like really deep and bad, I guess you'd have to like go in and surgically repair every, or repair certain things. Like if it went down to the muscle. That too. Stuff like that. Okay. Um, Can I take a wild guess? Sure. This was all part of a grand plan to try to escape. He Pro- hurt, hurt himself just enough to have to go to the hospital and took off. That was my thoughts exactly when I was reading this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I would, I got no other theory behind it except for he planned it. Okay. Mm-hmm. He knocked out one of the guards, took the weapon, and fled to a nearby house. Mosley stayed there for three days, undetected, unnoticed, until the people who owned the house came back from vacation. Yeah. That'll throw a wrench in the plan. Just a little bit. Mosley ambushed them and took them hostage for about an hour before tying up the husband and raping the wife. Jesus. Okay. Okay. Let that sink in a little bit. Yeah. This guy's a monster. Yeah, absolutely. He's a monster. Uh, The detective said it. He's a monster. Complete trash. I think I'd have a smile on my face if I pulled the switch. After committing the numerous crimes that he has just committed, he took their vehicle and fled once again. On that same day, he broke into another home and held a mother and daughter hostage for two hours while standing off with police. Mm. And what I could gather was the mother who called 911 or called the police. Because actually, little known fact, they didn't have 911 back then. No, they didn't. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't until the 70s. Doesn't have an exact date. I can't find it right now. But it wasn't until the early 70s before New York. Uh, the entire state of New York had a 911 system. Mm-hmm. They were still relying on operators to get them to dispatch. I think that's around the time that there was a 911 system put mm-hmm. in place in Minnesota too. I will say this is this case that I'm talking about right now is one of the cases that got the 911 system put into place. Okay, so you think it was the mother of the mother-daughter hostage situation that called the police? So what I could what I could gather is that she was able to get the operator and get police to their house. Okay. So after the two hours, Mosley did finally surrender with police, and he let the mother and daughter go, and surprisingly, no one was hurt. Good. My heart dropped when you said the mother and daughter. After these crimes that Mosley committed, he was charged with escaping from prison and kidnapping and adding another 15 years on his life sentence. Okay. Which, I mean, really doesn't make a difference if you're going to have a life sentence. But, hey, fuck you, guy. Yeah. I still was rooting for the death penalty, but 
Mosley did try to get parole many, many times throughout his time in prison, but all failed. Good. There was a hearing where he did try to say that the murder of Kitty was actually a mugging and goes on to say, people do kill people when they mug them sometimes. And that was his version of trying to justify. It's not how that works. Not, no. Insanity. Mosley did try for parole one more time in 2008 on the 44th anniversary of Kitty's murder, but thankfully again was denied. For the 44th time? No. Oh. No. Oh. It was the 44th anniversary of the murder. Oh, I was like, Jesus. No. He's persistent. (laughs) No, but it's funny you do bring that up because... How many times did he try? Because that was my next bullet point, was Mosley, over the course of his imprisonment, tried to get parole 18 times. That's still a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. 18 times. I I feel like most people would have stopped after three. I was going to say, I would have given up after three. While his paroles were denied all 18 times, on March 28th, 2016, Mosley passed away at the age of 81. And he did serve his he did serve 52 years of his life sentence, making him one of the longest serving inmates in the New York State prison system. Hmm. But yeah, like I said, this case here was one of the cases of multiple cases that was like, yes, we need a 911 system put into place. And what really bugs me about this is. You had a lot of people just ignore these cries for help because they said it didn't sound like cries for help. And then you also had police that were getting multiple calls about this. Yeah, and they took their sweet time getting there. Sweet time getting there. Even the ambulance did. It took them a half hour to get there. And this was at 3.30 in the morning. I feel like there's no cars on the road. Um, Was this like a community that was full of minorities maybe? Yeah. So, so that, hmm. I mean, I, shocker back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Like, I just, it it blows my mind. Like, I'm glad that we have a 911 system put into place. Yeah. But even still to this day, I f- still feel like call times are very delayed. Mm-hmm. Or response times are still very delayed. And I mean, we can go into the whole reason. All I can say is, I'm going to leave my opinion at this, is that our justice system and our police force are nowhere near what they need to be or what they should have ever been or what they they are so far away what they should be Mm -hmm. that it's laughable yeah to this day like we've had these issues for the last 50 plus years now Mm -hmm. and we still haven't gotten anything we haven't gotten a better way of police enforcement we haven't gotten a better way of a justice system like the whole system's fucked. Yeah. And we can all agree on that, but that's where I'm going to leave it because I know we could get so far into it. Yeah. Was that it? Was that your story? Hold on. I'm just trying to see here real quick. Okay. No, yeah, that would be the murder on Kitty. Okay. Kitty Kitty gave her life to hopefully better other people's lives, but I mean, that seems to be a common theme throughout the stories is you find something happens... Yeah. After well, a tragedy. Well, she gave her life, but well, no, she, because yeah. of because of her story, her change was made. Yep. Yeah. Her story change was made, and I don't feel like, sometimes I don't feel like we learn enough from these stories, though, either. No, we don't. Like, we put a system in place as sometimes, like, as a security blanket, I feel like, to make people feel better, 
but then other times but sometimes it's just putting a blanket on the issue but yeah it's just covering the issue it's not fixing it like you may think it's gonna fix it but let's i don't know man it's just Just continued change is needed with you know how this world is growing and how it has been growing and that's that's just the simple it is and I, i really do hope that a lot of these and like even all podcasters too when they tell stories like this i do hope that this does bring a lot of awareness and hopefully some very good changes that we can actually see in our lifetime yeah absolutely talking about it and having the awareness of it it's all we can do that's the the bare minimum what we can do is the bare minimum we make a taboo talk not taboo anymore Mm mm-hmm there's too many things that should not be taboo talk anymore. Absolutely. But with that true crime story, Hannah, what do you got spoopy for us today? Or I don't even know if it is spoopy. Paranormal. Take us on a paranormal wild adventure. So it's not... It could definitely fall under spoopy. Okay. But it's not paranormal. Oh. It's a mystery for sure. I love it. I do love a good mystery. And you said it did take place in the 60s too, huh? It starts in the 60s. I love that. We always have, it seems like we always have something that... Is similar. Is similar in some way. It it could even be one of the tiniest details that you would never think about. It's like, wait a minute. Yep. Just who we be, I guess. Today, I'm going to talk about June and Jennifer Gibbons. They are known more popularly as the Silent Twins. (gasps) I've heard of them. So, they were identical twins that were born on April 11th, 1963. They are two of the children of Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons, who were immigrants from Barbados, who relocated to the UK. They had three other siblings, Greta and Davis, who were older, and Rosie, who was younger. The twins were born on a military base in Yemen when their father was deployed there, and eventually, after moving around with deployments and everything, they settled in Wales. As babies, June and Jennifer seemed to be happy and healthy. As they got older, though, they became inseparable and spoke their own language with each other, despite the family speaking English at home. It was found later on that their language was some form of sped up... How do I... I looked up how to pronounce this. Um, Bajan Creole, and that's going to be kind of... um, It's part of the language in Barbados. Okay, it's like a language that is spoken throughout that, like, chain of islands and everything? Yes, yeah, those islands. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Some uh, speech or, like, linguistic people who have looked at it and listened to it have said that it is a mix of, like, English and slang from Barbados and all sorts of stuff, but it was, it was sped up really fast. See, because that that this is the part I that's the part I've heard of mm-hmm. um, that they speak in this like almost like tongue language. It's a very it's a hybrid language that mm-hmm. they have made up on their right. own. So I always wondered. So did the the parents spoke that language? Mm-hmm. Couldn't they have picked up on something, or was it they just probably that could. fast? It, they probably could have picked up a little bit of it, but it it was really fast, and it wasn't that true language. Okay. It was, that's kind of the basis of the language, it seemed like. But they would, yeah, it was It was really sped up. And later, which I will mention, it just got to the point where nobody could make out what it was. Okay. Um, they barely spoke to anyone but each other. 
Some believe that the bullying that they endured by being the only black kids in their school also pushed them closer to each other and to shut out the world. Eventually, the girls refused to speak or write in school, and during a yearly school-sanctioned health check, the medic giving vaccinations noted what he called their doll-like behavior and their complete indifference to being vaccinated, unlike most children their age, and ended up notifying a child psychologist. Doll-like, I haven't... I'm guessing this is a very blank stare, Just, yep. like very still almost. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. They saw many doctors, but still refused to speak to anyone but each other. One speech therapist noted that it seemed like June wanted to speak with her, but that Jennifer was keeping her from doing so. She also said it seemed like June was being possessed by her twin. Oh. Um, it was eventually decided to separate the girls at different boarding schools, meant to help them break out of their shells and form their own personalities. But it resulted in both of the girls becoming basically catatonic and unable to do anything, wouldn't do anything, definitely didn't speak, and they were reunited pretty shortly after that. I mean, gee, they've been together this whole entire time, they don't know anything else, and they made their own language and they're virtually inseparable. And here's the thing. Who would have thunk that would have happened? They know English. They can speak English. Mm -hmm. They can understand English. But they choose to not speak to anybody and just speak to each other in their language. So. Like, to a point, I get it. Like, sometimes I just want to speak a different language and talk to a single person, too. Right. (laughs) Just have a little secret language. Exactly. Once June and Jennifer were back at home together, they clung to each other and never left their room. They refused to speak to anyone and only communicated the basics with their parents with notes. They mostly played with dolls, giving them elaborate and dramatic stories. They also recorded plays that they made up for their dolls to share with their little sister, Rosie. Oh, that's sweet of them. It was around this time that their shared language became unintelligible to anyone. Oh. Along with that, they started becoming very synchronized with their movements and behavior, so they would walk in step synchronized. Like, pretty much every movement they made was synchronized. If one of them fell, the other fell. Like, at the same time? Or one would fall, and then, like, a half a second later, the other one would fall, because they noticed that one fall? Um, both, I think. Okay. Maybe. It was, some, it was something like that. But yeah, for the most part, it was synchronized. Whatever one did, the other did. They got that twin telepathy going on. Yeah. So one Christmas, the twins were each given diaries. In these diaries, they started writing down their plays and writing original stories. When the diaries were eventually read later on, it was found out that the girls hated each other. Oh. But felt unable to break out of their relationship. The ultimate Stockholm Syndrome? N- no, it's it's still not... I've got some quotes later, but, like, they just... They okay. felt like they couldn't... They couldn't break that bond, like... Interesting. It, okay. Yeah. Uh, as teenagers, they took a mail-order creative writing class and started writing novels they hoped to publish... These novels usually took place in the U.S., especially Malibu, and focused on young, attractive people who were unusual and or portrayed criminal behavior. Wow, okay. They pulled together the little money they had and published June's novel titled The Pepsi-Cola Addict. This details the story of a teenager seduced by a teacher sent to a reformatory where a gay guard starts to terrorize him. How old was she at the time you said? when? Like uh, in her teenager. Teen years, teenage. I think at least 16. Wow. Like, does that, like, represent, like, some shit that went on during their childhood or something? Like, No, I don't think so. Because another one of their, I don't know if it was June's or Jennifer's stories, but one of their other stories was 
about a kid who needed a heart transplant and his surgeon father was going to do it and in order to save the boy he takes the dog's heart and transplants it and the soul of the dog lives on in the boy and like oh my god like i said unusual and crazy or i actually didn't even get get to say it um many of their novels and stories have like disturbing or unusual plot points yeah like how does a teenage girl come up with stuff like that that's little and one that has locked herself and her twin away in their room yeah that hasn't really been outside socialized or Mm -hmm. anything it's like they i know they watched some tv they would have like the family set it up so they could watch the tv from their room like sitting on their floor at the door oh Mm -hmm. interesting yeah i never heard that part of the story yeah that Wow, I didn't I didn't actually realize that they were literally like in their room. In their room all like the 24/7. time. The only reason their parents knew that they were okay was because they could hear them talking with each other. God, I hope they didn't go to the bathroom in there. No, I don't think so. Okay, so they're they're not they're just disturbing, not gross. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> As teenagers, the twins got involved in drinking, drugs, and petty crimes. They also started becoming violent towards each other, but were always able to forgive each other and move on. They hate each other. They can't break the bond, but they can forgive each other. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's wild. It's, that's an interesting relationship. Um, they were eventually arrested in 1981 for arson and were placed in Broadmoor Hospital, a maximum security facility for the criminally insane. Here, they were loaded up with antipsychotics, which later had the dosages adjusted so that they could keep up with their writing. And they were writing like two to three thousand words a day. I mean, writing two to three thousand yeah. words. I'm like, because I'm trying to think. Like, I can type two to three thousand words pretty easily, but like writing them, writing many, them. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's a lot of writing if you're doing it every single day. Mm-hmm. Like, I think only like a novelist would be doing that. But I mean, they are. Well, technically, they are a novelist. Yeah, they are. They're yeah. writers. That's what they were passionate about. Got to have your passions, even if you're psychotic. So while they were at the hospital, the twins' behavior became even more strange. Oh, okay. So they would take turns eating, sometimes to the extent of a day. So sometimes it would be like... Wait, 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 wait. Take turns eating? Yes, they would take turns eating. So like sometimes one couldn't eat until the other one had already eaten. The fuck? Sometimes it would go for the extent of a day where one would eat very well all day long and the other would starve and then the next day... It was the the other twin that was eating very well and the other one starving. Uh, Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. And they were separated a lot of times in the hospital, too. So keep that in mind as well. They're doing this when they're not even. Yeah. Oh, they're not even together. Mm -hmm. Like they could see not see each other for a day. Yeah, because they know one of them ate, but the other one didn't. I, I don't know if they were separated the whole time that they were there, but I know okay. like my next point mentions them being in separate rooms. So Wild. even while they're being in separate rooms on other ends of the hospital from each other, the nurses reported finding them in the same positions or poses as the other at the same time. And they would change their positions at the exact same time, too. So however one was, like, laying or sitting or standing or whatever, the other was doing the same thing, even if it was, like, this wildly specific position or pose. Oh, this was in the 80s, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. 
that would make sense because I was thinking like how were they res- talking to each other but I guess they had walkie talkies and all yeah, that stuff anyways. they probably had pagers something like that right like hey what's this one doing mm-hmm. exactly what that one's doing yep that'd be freaky yeah but very, that's so fascinating though like why are we gonna get to the why or is this the mystery part I'm sorry you keep going I got so many questions I yeah I really can't answer it without just going through the just, story yep I will sit here so as the story of the silent twins started to blow up and caught the attention of an investigative journalist named Marjorie Wallace. Marjorie talked with the family first at their home and the parents let her see the girl's room. And that's when she found all of the diaries. She was given permission to take the diaries. She said she was like basically just shoveling them into her trunk. Permission to take them and go through them. And this is when the twins disdain for each other was first discovered. Because they had written about it in their diaries. Oh, right, right. Marjorie decided she needed to meet June and Jennifer and arranged visits with them at the hospital. At first, hospital staff had to carry June and Jennifer to meet with Marjorie because of their catatonic and seemingly frozen states. Sometimes they were just, like, completely limp, dead weight. Sometimes they were, like, frozen like a board. So, yeah, staff would have to carry them there. Eventually, Marjorie got the girls to talk to her by talking about their writing with them, which seemed to completely open them up and build their trust in her. Marjorie would read their stories and give them advice and her thoughts. It took her like five hours to read a single page because of how tiny and precise the writing was, and it was really fine cursive writing. So in order to read like a whole book of theirs, it would take her like a month of reading a single page for five hours every day. There's got to be pictures of this online, right? I I don't know. I don't. Okay. I'm not sure. So yeah, just think about that. The commitment. I I don't know if I could. No. Like. I wouldn't even be able to. See I'd it. look at it and go, well, no thanks. I would be exhausted just looking at it. Like one sentence, and it's like, yep, I'm done. So one of the last times Marjorie visited the girls who were about to be transferred to a lower security hospital, she had asked them what they wanted to do with this new part of their lives. Jennifer interrupted her and told her that she, Jennifer, would have to die before any of that. When Marjorie asked her what she meant, Jennifer responded with, because we decided. We, who's we? The sisters? June June and Jennifer. June and Jennifer, we Mm -hmm. decided Mm -hmm. that Jennifer is going to have to die. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Okay. <laughs> so during the twins' transfer to the new hospital, Jennifer slept on June's lap with her eyes open. <laughs> when It's not funny. It's, 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 slept with her eyes open. Slept with her eyes open. It's, it's not funny. When they arrived at the new hospital, Jennifer was dead. An autopsy showed that the cause of death was due to inflammation of the heart, but there was nothing in her system to warrant that happening. No drugs, no poison, nothing. So it's a mystery. But it's so freaky to think about that. She's like, I'm going to have to die. I think it was earlier that day she had said that. That day even? I I think. I think it went back and forth in some of this. So it was either the day before or like earlier that day. And she just willed herself to death so okay i I, it's just trying to wrap my head around well i've got more okay okay when marjorie visited june at the new hospital june had told her she was finally free and that jennifer had given up her life so june could have a normal one 
Marjorie asked about this, and June told her that they had made the decision that one of them needed to die in order for the other to live a full and normal life. June said that she would die for Jennifer since she was weaker, and so she did. Oh. Ever since Jennifer was proclaimed dead, June has been able to talk and function normally as if she'd been doing it her whole life. Just all of a sudden, just nor or I guess what they would consider I back mean, then normal. Yes. But yeah, like like that hadn't just been the I don't even know how many I don't even know how old she was at this point. It had to be at like thirty Yeah. Some. Because they were born in the sixties. Yeah. And, and I think like at this 80s. point at this point it was in the nineties. So nineties, yeah. So late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. So June now has a social life and great relationships with her family members and she lives near her parents in the UK. Wild. Yep. Does she talk about what happened? Get into it. Okay. Um, she said she doesn't have much interest in writing anymore now that she can talk to others also. Okay. So June does talk openly about her life and experiences with Jennifer by her side, and it doesn't appear to really affect her at all. She talks about it very openly, yep. but like, like, yeah, this happened kind yep. of deal. Yep. So Marjorie wrote a biography about the girls, I think in the 80s, actually. And Jennifer has had several interviews over the years where she's very open about all of it. Okay, so I have a quote from her. Mm -hmm. She said just kind of about her childhood with Jennifer. One day she'd wake up and be me. And one day I would wake up and be her. And we used to say to each other, give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. It's almost like they're having an identity crisis. Yeah. Or like, or did there something something supernatural going on here, or cosmic, or however you want to say it, that they literally could transfer. If the soul is your person, mm -hmm. and this is your meat suit, and I could see something like that. Maybe. Like. But what gets me with all of this is how self-aware they are. For, like, so they're are some things where they would either in their journals talk about like their family and their mother and how they felt so sorry for the the pain that they were causing in the family they were very religious at one point when they were girls and they would like open the bible and like chant out of it and they had like a whole ritual they would do and just basically pray that their family would be okay and that they wouldn't hurt their family oh and like i said my next line, um, June has said that while the girls didn't want to be dependent on each other and wanted to have their own lives, they couldn't break out of it. Like just this force that kept them together, mm -hmm. yet they both wanted to. Yes. And they decided that the only way for either of them to have a chance at living a normal life would be for one of them to die. I wonder if that's where J.K. Rowling got the end of the Harry Potter. I don't know. Only one can live while the other shall die. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, because it wouldn't surprise me because you're saying it's in the UK. Yeah. I'm like, it, it kind of makes sense. And it happened before she even wrote the books. Yeah, I suppose. So it's just, it's kind of funny. I'm wondering if she got some, some inspiration from that. Who knows? Potentially. Potentially. But I mean, just, it's wild to think about that it actually happened like that. Mm-hmm. Like and it was, it really almost seems like it was two halves of a soul yeah. in two different bodies. Yeah. It just, they couldn't function without the other because to your point, 
that they were two halves of a soul. Mm-hmm. Because it, it gets kind of weird, it seems like, when it comes to twins. Because, I mean, there's stories of, like, twins eating each other in the in the womb. Yeah. There is, like... Twins, twins are wild. Twins are really wild. Like, I mean, look at Jake and Max. Yeah. I mean, they're twins, and they've... I know they've said they've had some weird experiences well yeah and then like you had mentioned earlier like kind of the twin telepathy thing and just that insane connection or like how you know sometimes if something happens to one twin the other will know even if they're Mm -hmm. on the other side of the country yeah like there's i know there's been plenty of stories like that something happens to one twin the other twin like either feels it or the same thing happens to them Mm -hmm. it's like but also i mean just thinking about it on I guess you could say more of a spiritual level. They were created at the exact same time out of the exact same materials. They have literally been together forever. And when they keep that bond through those developmental years, I can only imagine if they have like that bond like this, where it's like they are only with each other. Which, I mean, I can see. I know there's plenty of twins out there that literally live together because they don't know how to live apart from each other. Yeah. Which, I mean, sometimes they live very full, happy lives. They just literally can't live not in the same house. Yeah. Which is fair. And back to your point of, like, the spiritualness and souls. So, you know how, like, reincarnation works and everything? Yes. So... You have somebody, because I could see it then, like, you're reincarnated into what biology or biologically and physically was going to be one person, but then the egg split up in the womb to create two different yeah. ones. Which goes back to the it being two parts of, of the, an entire soul. Mm-hmm. So I could see that if souls, reincarnation, and all that stuff is 100% true, which would be wild to think about could you imagine if that like that broke like it came to fruition our understanding of everything would be turned upside down oh yeah absolutely i'm just i'm I'm, honestly i'm waiting for a day that something breaks like that news breaks like that and we just we we don't understand anything i almost i'm almost just my morbid curiosity wants to know what would happen to the world would it stay the same would it not kind of deal yeah I do just have one more yeah. little point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know that June had struggled with Jennifer's death, but like I said, it seems like she's very well adjusted now mm-hmm. regarding it. And she wrote a short poem for Jennifer's headstone. Um, and it goes, we once were two, we two made one, we no more two through life be one. Rest in peace. That's a very spot on, but very creepy poem. It's it yeah it sheds a certain amount of light into, but I guess that's where you can get feeling. the that theory of two being one, mm-hmm. and yeah it does like you just said it does go into and them then, how they how they were feeling yeah and then when you think about how it seemed like Jennifer had some sort of control over June while mm-hmm. they were growing up, apparently they would communicate just with or wait did I. I think I got them all mixed up. June is the one that's alive. Yes, June is the one that's alive. So it seemed like one of them had control over the other. And they would control, or control, they would communicate with what June ended up calling I language. Mm -hmm. 
or yeah, it was something like that, where it literally was just like from a look of the eye, like just making eye contact, like they could know what the other was saying and that, you know, they would, one of them would use that to control the other a lot of the times in, it's kind of in like social situations. Well, I guess I could see that because I mean, if you're with somebody like your best friend, your significant other for long enough and they give you the look or a look, mm-hmm. you kind of know. But it was like almost like there was a whole dialogue going on. Oh. It seems like from like an outsider perspective. Like it looked like they were looking at each other, but like talking, but they weren't physically talking. Mm-hmm. Like they were definitely communicating, but there was no spoken words. Okay. But you know what gets me though? Hmm. So if Jennifer was the one controlling June and they said then Jennifer was the weaker of the two, so she must die. That doesn't sound like somebody who has control. I'm wondering if maybe when they were like separated while in the hospital, mm-hmm. maybe that made Jennifer lose that control and allow June to become stronger and okay. become more her own person a little bit in a way. And when that started happening, maybe that made Jennifer weaker then. Could we say that Jennifer was kind of like a narcissist where they get power from manipulating and controlling people? I don't know. Nobody knows anything about their personalities. Right. And obviously we can't ask Jennifer and June is only going to say what she wants to say about the entire topic. Mm -hmm. I've got so many questions, but I know they're just going to be left so unanswered. I mean, there's there's some extensive interviews out there. I didn't quite get into all of them. Um, yeah. Or with the fa- with the, I guess with the whole family then. Well, mostly with June. Okay. I don't know if the family's been interviewed too much. I know that while a lot of these medical decisions about the girls are being made when they were younger, the parents didn't really weren't offered a say. Were hardly even given a heads up. It was just like suddenly they were here and now they're in like this mental facility and oh now they're sending them to separate boarding schools and oh but I the was parents the also just didn't really know what to do well i guess i mean you're a parent now in the late 1900s yeah they just they figured they should trust the doctors which i would say yes to a point but mm-hmm. at the same time that was back then we didn't have all the access that we do now with mm-hmm. our to find our own information and other people's experiences and everything that might have similar situations. Yeah. Because you never know. Maybe this has happened to twins before. Maybe it's a very rare occurrence. Well, and they had referenced a study done on some twins that were very similar, and they had split the twins up at different boarding schools, and it seemed to be effective in them, you know, growing out of whatever that connection was and becoming their own people Mm -hmm. but it was catastrophic in this case with the gibbons girls so that's yeah that's what makes it really really just odd and strange why they would act that way and then i'm still dumbfounded by having the inflammation on their heart unless she had something that went very much undiagnosed but she knew something was wrong no i mean some people have suggested maybe it was the mental health drugs that they were given, but... 
I mean, which I could see because, I mean... But June was given the exact same thing, didn't have any reaction oh, to it. These were not new medications. They had been taking these medications for a while. But then you could also say... But there was nothing that they could trace the the heart inflammation to. I mean, I guess true. I mean, the skeptic in me is saying I, I feel like doctors and a, a mental institution such as that could lie. I think they brought her body to a different hospital for the autopsy. Oh, so more of an unbiased. That's okay. I mean, that's what they should always do when anything happens. It should be in an unbiased mm-hmm. scenario. It could yeah. said a lot of things, but... Oh, and I mean, in one of the um, articles I read that had interviews of many people who were around this and involved with this, and there were definitely people who said that while they were fascinated by this and everything, that quickly turned to, like, deep frustration. Because you have these two people sitting in front of you who can understand what you're saying, know how to speak the language you're speaking, but are refusing to speak to you. And when they do speak, it's if you're not in the room and it's only to their twin. And you can't separate them because they just turn into limp noodles, essentially, mm-hmm. when you do. It's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Man, I wish there was, like, document, like footage documentation on these interviews with the two. But I don't. there probably wasn't at that time. No. Because they weren't required by law to no, and they interview. No, they went to so many doctors. And interview. I'm sure there were plenty of doctors that were like, I don't know what to do with this. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me back in the... I know they went through a few referrals for therapists and everything, so... Yeah, it's just very bizarre. There's no real answers to it. It all just comes down to this insane connection that June and Jennifer had. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and I I honestly barely scratched the surface of this. Um, I changed my topic, like, three times this week. Oh, nice. And I wanted to do something that was kind of easy on the brain because mm-hmm. my brain is fried. But I ended up choosing to do this after deciding that the first two topics I was looking at doing had too much information. And this had far more information. <laughs> so. <laughs> hey, maybe you can double back down to it and or come back to it at a later time. If you want I mean, to go maybe, but honestly, in- I would suggest anybody who wants to know more do do some research um there's an article it seems like an, a, a lengthy article from the new yorker oh that i had i don't even think i got through the full article it, i found it like right at the end of my research but mm-hmm. um i'm sure there's a few podcasts on it but yeah there's there's definitely plenty of information about it i just i pieced together what i could and got some of the Stuff that I found particularly interesting in there, and yeah. I mean, yeah, I, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot I knew about, but from what you were saying, there was a lot I didn't. Yeah. And there's a lot I was surprised. I was like, really? There that? was a lot I left out that I, I read, too. But yeah, so that <gasps> that is the Silent Twins. That's that's what I got. What was their name again? June and Jennifer. No, no, their last name. Gibbons. Gibbons. That's I, th- I probably said Gibson. At some point. So if I did, I apologize. It is Gibbons. Hey, you know, it's the 13th episode, unlucky number 13. (laughs) But I like to think of 13 as lucky, though. I do, too. Because, I mean, I don't know. I I seem to have a good day on Friday the 13th. And sometimes the number 13 does bring some good luck that I've seen in just day-to-day life. So, Well, if you want to look at a little bit of numerology of the number 13... 
um, in numerology, you would add one and three together to get the final single digit number, which would be four, which can um, be a sign of, you know, blessings to come, don't give up hope, things like that. I like that. At least but I that... think. I saw a lot of fours recently, and I looked up repeating fours, and that's that's what it said for repeating fours, at okay. least. But I would like hey, to think that... Still? I would I not like to think. I think that that's kind of how it works. I'm not an expert. I'd say it works that way. We'll keep it that way. Gotta have some positivity. Yeah. Speaking of positivity, Hannah, do you have a cemetery fun fact for us today to end the episode off? I do. So, a hearse stopping at someone's door on the way to the funeral is a death omen for the householder. Which I want to I want to know why the hearse is stopping at any house on the way to the funeral. Yeah, like you got a body in the back. Why are you stopping? Like, did you forget your lunch? Like Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, did you forget your lunch? <laughs> Leave it to me to crack a little inappropriate jokey joke. <laughs> the reason why Nana was so late to her own funeral is because the hearse guy got hungry and he forgot his lunch at home. And it was on the way, so we stopped. Oh my god. Well, we should probably end the podcast. Yeah, I think we just got off on a tangent thing. I kind of thought we just ended it, but, yeah, but we, we didn't do we our sign-off. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank you for listening to episode 13. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting one. It felt different, but it felt good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, I think. Right. Which I say ever after every episode because I do think that everyone's a good one, so. Don't I'm you. a little biased. <laughs> well, with that, I think we will see everyone on episode 14. Yeah, bye. Take it easy. The Bleeding Grave is hosted by Hannah Slavic and Austin Winger. Music by Hannah Slavic. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can listen to The Bleeding Grave on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and more. 